Okay, I've just uh, restarted recording. So you'll find a big gap of silence and then sounds of me farting and stuff. You know, one of the wonderful things about being human, Danny, is the universality of toilet humour. You know, I've lived in a few countries and uh, whatever country you're in, toilet humour is like the lingua franca of being human, really, isn't it? It's like the Actually, I don't even know if that's correct way to use lingua franca. It's not, is it? Lingua franca means the the common language. The common language, which, yeah, sort of is. Okay. That's what you're trying to say. The lingua franca of comedy, I suppose. There's lots of comedy that is that only works to a certain subset. You know, political comedy is very popular in America mm. and, and very difficult to do in Japan, for example. But toilet humor sort of works everywhere. We actually had, this is one of the conversations that I can specifically remember us having on the train on the way to the original Station 13. Right. And that was the interesting way that humour is very, very culture-specific. Mm. And one of the great privileges and challenges of working in such a multicultural workplace like the one that we both worked at when we were there together was that, you know, with everybody from different countries, it's really, really fascinating how the, the place that humour takes in the workplace because there are just things that British people do that American people, for example, just simply don't find funny at all. Right. <laughs> and by the same token, you know, there are things that, you know, Japanese people would find hilarious that the rest of us are left just sort of scratching our heads wondering, you know, what what's so funny. Right. I think in general, to make a broad generalisation, Australians really like parody and Americans really like exaggeration and British people really like subtlety. Mm. This is like the, this is, uh, do I get an award for like the world's worst generalization? Very broad strokes. <laughs> Very broad strokes. Fat strokes. It always sounds sort of condescending when I say it and I really don't mean it that way. But it does feel to me at least like American humor is a lot more obvious and in your face. Right. And that's not because American people are stupid and they don't understand subtle humour. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it definitely seems like, you know, you get American versions of British comedies quite often, like The, the Office was right. redone here with all American cast and sort of rewritten for America. And it's just a very different style of comedy and much more... Like it feels when you when you're used to at least for me when I'm with the comedy that I'm used to watching, a lot of the time when I f watch an American comedy, I feel like the setup is kind of maybe it's part of what you're supposed to enjoy. It's kind of obvious, like you're watching it, and then you, it's almost like they're saying, "Okay, I'm about to tell the joke now. Here it goes. That was the joke," <laughs> and then. <laughs> that was, and it's like you're sort of preparing for it, and then you get the the payoff right and that's sort of i'm always trying to tread cautiously because it can sound like i'm being a bit down on, on american humor when i'm saying that and i don't mean to say it's obvious and we're clever and our humor is more highbrow or anything like that but it's almost as if here all of that setup and being that sort of all being part of that maybe is is part of what's supposed to be fun about it and what's supposed to be funny about it mm. whereas i definitely get the feeling from British comedy, but also from just the way that we talk to each other, like as 
two English or two sort of British people just in conversation, a big part of the joke is that both parties are trying to pretend that there is no joke. Right. Right. Yeah. And you're both it, like that sort of deadpan, very, and you know you're both being ridiculous and you're taking it further and further and further and seeing who is the first person who's going to crack. Right. Like who, whoever laughs first has kind of lost. And then you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess we might as well go home now. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. I think that maybe um, we can draw parallels in music as well. You know, it's often the case that music styles that start specifically in the UK and travel across to America, the changes that happen to the way that that music is structured and the way it's executed is a nice example of what is appealing for British listeners and what is, you know, appealing for American listeners. And again, these are massive, massive, you know, 10 kilometer wide strokes that I'm painting with here. But for example dubstep the uh, original uk dubstep which was of course originally influenced by was kind of a byproduct of the jamaican movement of music in uh, the uk in the 80s i guess 70s and 80s right and um the original dubstep comes from the original dub music which is very very dark and very very subtle and when that traveled across the pond to the united states and uh, was picked up by, you know, of course, the most famous proponents being Skrillex, right. were kind of exploded into this extravagant, almost ex- just, yeah, exaggerated form of itself where it's all of a sudden about these building up this tension for bars and bars and bars and then this massive, massive drop with these huge, ridiculous, flatulent bass lines. All right. And I mean that in the best possible way. Oh, we're back to toilet humor again. Yeah, there you go. See, it's, <laughs> it's interesting, though, that, that you know when you compare it to the original, where, which was very, very subtle, very dark, I guess I can say, I, I'm not sure if it's being unfair or not, but I, I guess I can say that the, the original was more intellectual, whereas the US take on it was far more physical. And I'm, I don't mean those terms in any kind of condescending way. Right. I don't mean to say that intellectual is better and physical is not. Because right. it's, it's not a value judgment. But, no. But what do you mean by physical? Do you mean like to dance to? Not well. Yes, but not necessarily. Just the it, it's a it's sort of more of a a muscular <laughs> approach to the, the music. You know, it's mm. just sort of building it up, very visceral, very you know, really pant flapping kind of stuff <laughs> the, the 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 u.s take on on dubstep pant flapping pant flapping it's a technical term is it i don't have the same musical background you do but uh. yeah it's a it's a technical term uh, along with bass bin <laughs> pant flapping anyway physical i think is a good term to describe it because not necessarily that it has a more of a physical effect on you but it's just what's the what's the right way to put it Pri- almost or primal yeah yeah, yeah i think that's what you were going to go for there yeah yeah there's a there is a sort of you already said visceral and and a very sort of we're just going around in circles saying the same words again it is physical that is settle on physical right yeah do you think that is the american culture that is doing that or the american taste or is it because when things come over here they are often the most commercial version of that thing is what then explodes. Mm-hmm. That's what then gets re-exported from America around the globe. And that's what you think of. But what we had originally with 
dub and dubstep in the UK was a much more underground style of music. And that underground dubstep may well exist here in America as well. And we just don't really know about it because what we see is the thing that exploded and it happened to explode in America because this is a very good place for commercial success to happen. Mm. It's, it's interesting. I'm not sure. Um, one thing is for sure is that, well, again, for sure, with my 10 kilometer wide brush that I'm painting strokes with here, mm. it's in the US at least from my observations of working with American people and also uh, associating with friends and colleagues from the United States, if it's good, it deserves to be raised up. Whereas in the UK and certainly in Australia, if it's good, it needs to be bashed down. Do you know what I mean? Right. If it, um, it is, I, know, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm not sure if I agree with the... A protasis of your argument. <laughs> if it is successful, then that success is amplified in America. Mm. Whereas I think successful things in the UK, potentially in Australia, I don't know, also in Japan to some extent, there is a tendency to want to bring down success and not let it get too big for its boots, right. as it were. Right. I'm not sure about good. I think that's maybe the wrong word. Mm. There, You know, things... We want things to be good. Everywhere wants things to be good, right. I think. And I don't think... But we've, we, we there, there is a tendency to treat success as a kind of selling out, mm. which is sometimes misguided, I think. But, I mean, bringing it back to music, you know, if you have a good feeling that comes from this music and a good feeling that comes from these specific musical elements that come part of a, part of a genre... Right. Then let's make the most of them. So, for example, the step part of dubstep comes originally from two-step, uh, which was uh, basically a, a double-time, or no, sorry, half-time rhythm. Right. And, you know, that half-time rhythm, together with the very, very deep, low, growling, burpy, flatulent bass line, which formed the original dub. Uh, and dubstep music in the UK, right? You know, they're they're unique, they're interesting, they're great, they're captivating. So that's the good part. So let's make the most of that. You know, so I guess it it could be, as you said, you know, there, there's no doubt in the US there is a um, a huge amount of, I and mean, we're just talking about dubstep, of course, and you know, there's and there's no doubt a huge amount of dubstep that's made very very subtly and and very uh, w with intellectual objectives in mind and yeah possibly you might be right that you know what we what you think of when you think of oh us dubstep you think of the most successful versions of that right. which tend to be you know very i guess uh, marketing focused perhaps <laughs> so you're going to get very very exaggerated forms of the original but uh, you know moving we originally started talking about this because we we're talking about humor and the difference between humor and the idea of taking, for example, timing, the timing of a joke, taking that timing, building it up, and then letting the punchline drop down, it's kind of like that, that expression of drama and expression of humor, humorous drama is almost kind of physical more than it is intellectual in a way somehow. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I know what you mean, but I, don't, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to sort of stay on the same page as you because... Obviously, timing is very important in all comedy, mm. whatever the sort of comedy, in slapstick, in American-style sitcom comedy, or in 
very subtle, understated, between-the-lines kind of comedy. Mm. Timing is still extremely important, whatever whatever the comedy. Mm. The, way, the way things are interleaved and the, the place from which you draw the comedy changes. Mm. You know, and America is not without its subtle yeah, absolutely. Was, comedy either. I was just going to mention that. And one of the, the first time that I can remember really identifying with American humor was The Simpsons. Mm. And The Simpsons is very, very subtle. Well, The Simpsons is both. Right. The Simpsons has a very obvious in-your-face kind of layer to it. And underneath that, there's a much deeper, more subtle layer going on as well. Right, right. Anyway, so coming back to the original point, it is fascinating how humor is very, very different in different countries. And uh, uh, Japanese humor Japanese humor is kind of characterized by a lot of slapstick. You know, it's very slapstick, very physical, physical as in actually physical body movement and literally just certain certain poses are funny just by the nature of that's a funny position to put your body into right it's very slapstick and also very rhythmic have you noticed that mm. the classic japanese humor is is manzai which is the two-person stand-up comedy right and there are two parts to manzai you have the tsukomi and the boke tsukomi means to criticize and boke means to like kind of like brain fart <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like boke uh, means to um, say something stupid or, or do something obviously silly. Right. Actually, photographers will be curious to know why boke and bokeh, as we say it in English, to describe the uh, the out of focus bits in a shallow depth of field photograph. Mm. It's actually the same word in Japanese. Is boke right comes yeah, from boke? Yeah, boke comes from bokeru, which means to blur out. Right. So if you boke, it means your, your, your train of thought kind of blurs out for a moment, i.e. you say something silly and stupid. And in the manzai comedy duo, the tsukomi person will then criticize you for it with a big smile on their face and lots of typical gestures that are um, very uh, predictable. Right. It's very slapstick, very rhythmic. And that interchange between the stupid person and the, the smart guy who's criticizing the stupid person, that kind of forms the the core of Japanese manzai humor, which is very, very popular, isn't it? Right, yeah. And that mix of uh, sort of vocal wordplay-based humor and just pure physical slapstick as well, because it goes back and forth. I mean, the, the tsukomi will often end up literally hitting the other person right? as the sort of punchline, as a, as a sort of punctuation of the punchline almost. Right. But then what has led to that point has often involved... A lot of wordplay back and forth and mistaken meanings because of dumb puns and mm. things like that. Right, right. But then there's the other extreme, of course, in Japan, which is Rakugo, ah. which is the much more sort of traditional story-based form of comedy. Right. And that, that goes back centuries. That's much more on the subtle end of the spectrum. Mm. Very much... It's not particularly physical. I was going to say it's not at all physical, but it actually is. But it's usually just one person sitting in Seiza in the traditional kneeling position on a cushion. And they have two props, a fan and a small cloth, which is a tenugui in Japanese. Right. And those props stand in for a variety of items over the course of the story but that's all they're allowed to use and the other technique that they have 
is that they change the angle of their head mm. to represent different people talking in the story. That's right. So they, they will be narrating this story and they'll go through and then whenever somebody talks, they'll have a particular voice that they put on for that person and a particular very precise angle that they turn their head for that person. And so if there are two people talking to each other, you can keep track of who is saying what by which direction they're facing. Mm. But in some of the stories that are known to be particularly difficult to perform, part of the reason that they're difficult is because some of them, I think, have up to 10 characters. And the, the, <laughs> the angle between these different, like the, the difference in angle between all these different characters is, is extremely subtle. Right. And just physically trying to put your face facing the right angle for the right characters is apparently very difficult. But those are, they almost take the form of shaggy dog stories. They're very long stories and they have all these details over the course of them. And then they come to a sort of conclusion that wraps it all up and is, is kind of funny. Hmm. Uh, I can't really remember many examples. The one that comes to mind is Manju Kawai, the scary Manju. Manju is like a, a sweet. And there's, there's a story essentially about somebody who pretends to be scared of Manju so that people will give him more Manju. <laughs> I mean, that's just hilarious, isn't it? No, that classic. Well, <laughs> I don't mean that in a sarcastic it, way. Sorry. It's told. The, the, so the, the joke is not usually the funny bit. Right. It's everything that leads up to it, right? It's right, the whole right. way the story is told and how you arrive yeah. at this conclusion. See, that, that's fascinating because that is very Japanese. You know, that the process is far more important than the result. Right. Uh, and you see that in, in many aspects, especially of Japanese business culture as well. It's not the result that matters. It's how you get to the result that is important. Right, right, yeah. So. And, it's, and, and these stories will also often have something, you know, you, you often recognize something in in the characters and in the the point that they're making it's not so much a moral but it's a, like an observation of people mm. that you you recognize in real life another one uh, that is i've just remembered is one about this guy who is learning tea ceremony and he's really really bad at it but he sort of builds himself up as being amazing at it and then everyone sort of assumes he's going to be really good. So they all go to study under him or to go and receive tea from him. And of course, he's really bad. So they're, they're all tasting it and thinking it's disgusting. But thinking if they let on that they think it's disgusting, everyone else will think they're Philistines. Mm. Because every, everyone is sort of operating under the shared misapprehension that this person is really good at making tea. Mm. So... So they're all pretending to like it so as not to lose face right. <laughs> with everyone else. Right. But they all end up throwing it away out the window right. and pretending to have drunk it. That's an interesting take on subtle humor, isn't it? Um, I was just thinking about like the best example of subtle British humor that I, that I can think of. And I'm not that widely uh, knowledgeable about that much British humor. But the one that I can remember very, very uh, strongly is The Fast Show. I don't know if you ever caught The Fast Show and that, that was in the, was it 90s or the 2000s? Classic 90s. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it would have been the 90s, I think. Yeah. Around 98, I want to say, 97, 98. Right. Yeah, the, the Fast Show was fantastic because you had to watch about 10 episodes to find it funny. 
So when I first watched it, basically it just consisted of these short clips that seemingly make no sense at all. Right. You know, like I remember one of them was this guy would, very poorly dressed guy would come out of an outhouse. That's a, like an out, an old style outdoor toilet. Yeah. <laughs> and he closed the door behind him and then he'd tell you, he'd say, this week I have mostly been eating newspapers or something like that, like completely, right, right. completely nonsensical. Yeah. And then he'd go back inside and it makes no sense all right. at all the first time you watch it, but it happens every week and he'll say something different every time. And that gives them all of this humorous leverage to play with. Right. Because they're, they're taking your expectations of what you think is going to happen based on, you know, what you've seen before and then basically playing with that. And, uh, just so funny after a while and it's so hard to explain to people because really it makes no sense that that would be funny unless you've seen every episode up to that point right it is and and a lot of sketch humor a lot of sketch shows like that did that like harry enfield and chums was another one which preceded the fast show Mm. which was again it was did you ever watch that no i didn't it had a lot of known sort of characters that you saw repeated from uh, week to week, there was one who was angry all the time and used to just, you know, there'd be this sort of fairly innocuous situation would happen and then he'd suddenly get very angry and scream, Oi! You! No! <laughs> and then start on some big run. But that was his sort of catchphrase. <laughs> that was a very good mic technique there, Danny. Well done. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and there was Kevin who was Kevin the Teenager. I think it was just literally called Kevin Kevin and Perry the Teenagers. Right. And it was the first episode had the night of his 13th birthday and he's 12 and he's all cute. And then suddenly the clock strikes midnight and he hits 13 and his hair grows long and he suddenly gets acne and he starts <laughs> slouching. And <laughs> Very realistic. And, and his cat goes, I hate you, you're so unfair. <laughs> very realistic (laughs) yeah so that would but they had they had all these these catchphrases that uh, this was all while i was at school in fact i think i was not yet 13 when kevin from harry enfield and chubbs turned 13 Hmm. so but that was i was around that age right and so at school we would all just be repeating this these things right and like we, you know, we'd all be sitting in our form room and then somebody would get in and they'd just open the door and come in and say, this week I have mostly been eating sausages and then sit down at their desk. Right. <laughs> that was just a normal thing that happened. Right. Yeah. I think um, just to qualify the statement I made earlier about uh, Australians liking parody, just before we leave the, the topic of humour, I guess the two examples that I can remember and people from my generation will probably remember too, uh, Australians from my generation probably remember too, Mm. a classic TV series we had in Australia called Fast Forward, which is basically uh, a group of like six or seven stand-up comedians that it's basically all parody. It's all satirical parody, you know, imitating politicians or famous people or celebrities it's it's impossible to give examples because so much of it is very, very culturally specific. But mm. the other example was um, two comedians who I think are still going these days, I'm not sure, called uh, Roy and HG. And Roy and HG had a fantastic television series on Australian's ABC channel called Club Buggery. <laughs> 
Are we going to have to beep that out? Is that? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> you can go and look up that word in the dictionary if you wish. Anyway, um, this program was all about. Uh, basically, Roy and HG made a name for themselves as parody sports commentators. So they would be always sort of commentating sports. And when you think about it, mm. commentating sports is ripe for humorous intervention really right because basically you're watching the sport in front of you and you have these voices coming from nowhere telling you what's happening even though you can see what's happening and there's so much opportunity there for parody and for sarcasm and for satire and uh, Roy and HG were experts at that so right. uh, that's just a bit of a mention there of two classic pieces of Australian humor yeah there's actually I quite like Australian humor from what I've seen of it do you know Clark and Daw? No. If they're from the last 16 years, I don't know them because I've been away from Australia. I think I think they're like the last 30 years oh, Okay. <laughs> I think they are long. I don't know how long they've been going, but one of them, I forget which, maybe Clark, recently died. I see. And so a lot of their videos have been circulating on the YouTubes. This the the one who died. I really should look up which one it is. He's originally from New Zealand, I think, I but he became super famous in Australia. Mm. And they do a very funny sort of series of interviews. I'll put a, a link in the show notes to the one that I it was the first one that I saw, which is when he's doing. It's a t sort of typical newsman versus politician style of interview, I right? See. Just pure black background two people, the interviewer and the person being interviewed. Right. And they're asking about this incident that has happened where there was a ship and the front fell off of the ship. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the, the politician is just sort of answering in this sort of evasive way, but <laughs> like saying, well, of course it's not ideal. I mean, the front fell off. <laughs> but anyway, that is, that is very funny. I also watched... Uh, it's sort of more kind of innocent. I, I quite like a lot of the kind of innocent feeling Australian comedy that I've seen. Like there was a film that came out like 20 years ago or something called The Castle. Oh, yeah. Did you see that? Yes. That was a long time ago. Right. I saw that when I was a kid. And I think I saw it again a bit later. But I just really liked it. It was just a really sort of fun, uh, family-friendly story. But it was very funny. Yeah. Yeah. That and The Dish is another one. The Dish. Have you seen The I Dish? I don't know that one. That's got What's-His-Name, What's-His-Name, who is Australian. I'm very good at this. He was in Jurassic Park. Sam Neill? Yes, that's got Sam Neill in it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's very funny. Anyway, so uh, how are we doing for follow-up? Yeah, oh, one thing before we go on to follow-up, uh, to get in, because we talked about Rakugo and I was going to mention it, I can't leave it be without putting in the show notes a link to the brilliant series Tiger and Dragon. Okay. Which have you seen Tiger and Dragon? No, I it's a it's a TV series that ran uh, 10 or so years ago in Japan about a yakuza guy who gets into Lakugo and decides he wants to learn Lakugo. I see. And it's very funny. Every episode is itself based on a classic Lakugo story. Oh, okay. So they've while the main character is learning that story events similar to that story are happening in the modern world in sort of as the story goes on so right. you see this contrast between the story as originally told where it sort of goes back to Edo Japan kind of setting and you see them acting out the original story 
But then you see the sort of equivalent thing happening in modern Tokyo with all these yakuza. And it's it's very funny and very well done. So I'll put a link in the show notes. Sounds like something worth checking out. It's very good. Uh, it was a, a big part of my early... When I was first learning Japanese, I watched that and Toriku and uh, Ikebukuro Westgate Park just constantly. Mm. Those are my three series that I used to watch. Anyway, links in show notes, etc. For follow-up, we don't have all that much, but my PHB arrived, my player's handbook. That's right. It arrived, I think, just a couple of days after we recorded the last episode, and it's great. The binding is so far holding up. Okay. <laughs> and I'm very excited about D&D again, and I have had fun rolling a character, and... That is great. You need uh, you need some people to play with. Indeed so. Yes, that is. <laughs> and some, some time to play in. <laughs> yeah, that, that's useful too, isn't it? But anyway, it's, it's great. I'm happy to have a uh, working copy of the book, if books can be said to work. Mm. And, and I didn't even have to send the other one back. They never asked for it back. So I actually have two copies of the book, one with all the pages falling out and one without. So You mentioned last time that uh, the advantage of your your previous edition is that you can actually take chunks out and lend the chunk to people. Right, exactly. So if I do find anybody to play against, I will take both books and I will continue to make use of the one that has fallen apart Right. Uh, since I still have it. So, so that's a bonus. Uh, the only other thing was uh, about day- daylight savings time. We heard from our Icelandic listener on the Reddit, who isn't actually Icelandic, that uh, they don't have daylight savings time in Iceland either. So like Japan, they just continue on the same time zone throughout the year. In the case of Iceland, it's GMT. Mm. So they're always on GMT, which is, I think GMT is possibly the best time zone. Uh, I think <laughs> I think there's a case to be made for GMT being the best. Is, is, is that anything to do with the fact that uh, it's from the UK? <laughs> it's, it's in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's convenient for both America and Japan and anywhere in between. It's kind of, if you're sitting on GMT, you're well-placed for dealing with people from almost anywhere in the world. That, that's true. That's some true. places, you're sort of inconveniently located. Right. So, here are for people in Greenwich and Iceland. You also have a watch, make, watch uh, complication named after you as well, which is... Uh, well, yes. That's, that's an honour that. that not many places, people, things or functions have. No, indeed. I suppose Switzerland does quite well out of that. Yeah. <laughs> We're actually uh, heading into... Uh, Winter, of course, and the um, the days are getting very, very short, very, very quickly here in Sweden. Mm. What time? Uh, what sort of times do you get dark and then light again now? Uh, light is about what would it be? Maybe about seven thirty or eight, mm. and dark is about three thirty at the moment. Oh, seven thirty-eight is, I suppose, early-ish as far as these things go. Yeah, we're not uh, not really into the deep winter yet. Right. It's um it's really nice really nice. I think I might have mentioned before that, you know, Swedish people love to complain about how dark and gloomy and grey it is, but uh right. there is a certain kind of misty evocativeness to the atmosphere, the vibe the, the, the ambience, then that feeling that comes from, you know, you look outside at four o'clock in the afternoon, it's pitch black. Mm. The interesting thing, of course, is that in the uh, the shortest days, the sun does come up, but if it's cloudy, basically the whole day is kind of blue. It, it never really gets bright at all. So it's sort of this gray-blue color. Mm. And if you've got some fog or some snow, 
then it, it becomes really, uh, really impressive in, in, a, in a very uh, uh, surreal way. Everything's blue and you've got these sort of yellow lights, yellow and orange lights coming out of windows. Mm. And I think I might have mentioned that uh, Swedish people tend not to uh, use curtains or blinds. And that's because they like to get as much natural light into the rooms inside uh, as they can. Right. And as a way to deter people from looking in too much, mm. they tend to place lights in the windows. So that way from the outside, when you look at it, you know, it's all bright and you can't really see much inside. Oh, I see. And, uh, when you say they don't have curtains or blinds, they don't use net curtains so much. But so they're not, when it's dark outside, there's not much, you're not going to get much light in. You're not going to get any lateral light, really. So do they have curtain curtains that they close? They, they, it's interesting. People don't seem to mind having their curtains, if they have them, just open all the time. All right. So you can go for, you can go for a walk down the street and you can literally walk if, with your head sideways and just sort of look straight into people's live lifestyles. You know? Right. <laughs> I mean, I, in, in England, I don't know how common this is in general, but I feel like... We didn't really have net curtains, right? Which in, in Japan, it's very common. You wouldn't really leave a window uh, exposed. Right. You'd have both curtains and then net curtains as well. So that even when you have the curtains open to let the light in, you have net curtains for, for the sake of privacy. Right. And there are, I remember places in England which had that as well. But we never did. And... I remember originally finding it a bit weird. I remember thinking the idea of having curtains which are closed during the day, mm. even if they're net curtains, so they're letting light through. It's not as much light as no curtains at all, obviously. Mm. And I remember finding that idea weird. Mm. Whereas now, obviously, I've lived in Japan for this long, and now I'm living with somebody who is Japanese. And for her, I think it would be unthinkable to just have the windows open and have it so that anybody could just look in. Mm. And I've kind of got used to that standpoint now. So, yeah, yeah it's funny. Yeah, so uh, it, it forms like, because all of the, you have this orange light coming out of the windows of all the houses and apartments. And so is everything is blue with a sort of these pinpoint orange lights all over the place. And it's, it's really quite evocative. So uh, anyway... Mm. Let's see what else has happened in the past two weeks. Well, something very big has happened in the uh, social media circles. Very big. Big is the operative word. Like uh, twice <laughs> as big, really. Twice as big, yeah. How do you feel about 280 characters on Twitter? I think it's fine. I, actually, I think it's great. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think it's great. And the reason I think it's great is, firstly, 280 characters doesn't mean that you have to write 280 characters to begin with. You know, if you want to write 140 or less... That's fine. Sure. <laughs> the one thing that's uh, always sort of bothered me about Twitter mm. is that two things. Number one is I end up spending more time trying to cull down what I'm writing into something very, very short mm. and get within, you know, five or ten characters away from 140. Right. And then get really, really frustrated because I've compressed as much as I possibly can, but, you know, now... I have to cut something out in order to get it in under 140, even though I've got the bare minimum of information that I want there. Right. And it's hard to get across the nuance sometimes when you need to cut out essential words. So that I always found annoying. That's not so much a problem anymore. 280 characters is still 
fairly short, but uh, it allows me a little bit more freedom. And the other thing to re- remember, of course, is that uh, oh, actually I'll, I'll mention the second one first before I say that. But the the second thing that I always found annoying is conversations. So conversations between multiple people and multiple. If you got multiple people, originally you had their at mentions taking up right. part of that quota. Right. So the more people you added, the fewer characters you had to write your message. Exactly. And also um, right. previously, I think they have changed that. Right. Right. They, a few months ago, they made it so that the people's names don't count towards the character limit. Also, URL links as well. Yeah. And picture attachments. All of these things just sort of doesn't really make sense to be part of the body of content of a tweet. So anyway, now you don't really need to worry about that so much, which I think is nice. It's also important to remember what I was just going to say just a moment ago, that, uh, for example, when you are writing a tweet in Japanese, yes, 140 characters is very, very long. Right. That is actually part of the justification for this change. Right. Did you see that? Yeah, I remember. Explicitly, they said, well... We looked at all the English speakers struggling to fit their tweets into 140 characters, and we looked at all the Japanese speakers writing novels in a tweet, right. and, and we thought we'd redress the balance. Right. Like That is explicitly part of what they're trying to do. Right. To be honest, I don't mind it at all, and I think um, I find 280 characters is, you know, not so long, I mean, so it, it does disallow you from posting things that are way too long. However, it's long enough so that you don't really need to think about the character counts so much anymore, which was uh, right. kind of always bothered me. You know, I want to say this. It's not very long. I'm not going to be bothering people with this huge novel, but I'm 10 characters over the limit and I've cut out everything that I can and I really want to keep this nuance in here. What do I do? Right. So now I don't need to worry about that so much. So I, I don't mind it, to be honest. Okay. So what do you think? I disagree. <laughs> I thought you would. <laughs> I don't care that much, but I thought the 140 character limit was good for a couple of reasons. Mm. I liked the limitation of it, right? I There was something nice about being forced to rework your words to fit them into the limit. That thing that you describe as annoying, which is sometimes annoying... Mm of trying to fit your thoughts into this limited space was for me part of the beauty of the whole system because it forced you to think about your words. Right. It forced you to think through what you wanted to say, what the most important thing was, whether it was worth saying at all, although obviously that has had a limited effect on people's output. Mm. (laughs) Plenty of people tweeting things that aren't worth saying, but... (laughs) at least for me i found that it forced me to think through what i wanted to say what i wanted to prioritize Mm. and how i wanted to put it and i enjoyed that there is a sort of poetry to it now there's no magic property of the number 140 that doesn't apply to 280 necessarily right there's no reason why 140 is the perfect number except that that's what we've always had and that is just a remnant of the fact that originally you were supposed to be able to submit these things via text message right but it worked and it had that effect and i feel like it doesn't have that same effect now Mm. there's a couple of other points which is 
Well, first, were you going to respond to that? Uh, no, I was going to talk in general about what Twitter is because it is a very, very bizarre thing. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting, but let's let's hold that off for now. So, and th- there are a couple of other just practical points. Number one, messages are now twice as long. That means twice as much scrolling through my feed, which sounds silly. Yeah, but that's assuming right? that everybody that you're following is trying their very best to write 280 characters, right? Right. Right. And in their follow-up blog post, uh, they noted when it, the follow-up to their experiment, because originally this was a, a limited rollout, right. just to some population of, of Twitter, and they were monitoring what happened. And they did say that when people first got the feature, for a few days, all their tweets suddenly became really long and they were trying to use it. Right. But there was a fairly fast fall-off when the novelty wore off. Right. And they found that most of their tweets ended up being sub 140 characters anyway. Right. And so, you know, it only you only end up using it when you need it. So maybe maybe that's true. I, and for all that I'm criticizing it, now that it's here, I have gone over the 140 characters a couple of times already. So I am making use of this mm. feature, uh, which I don't think is hypocritical. I think I am... I'm open to both criticize the change and yet make use of the thing they've decided to do. Mm. But the other thing is, I'm not really sure I buy this idea that we introduced this thing because Japanese speakers and Chinese speakers could write mega long tweets. And so we're making it so that English speakers get 280 characters, but Japanese speakers get 140 still. I'm not sure exactly what that means i haven't looked into the technical details so i don't know whether that means based on your region you get a different number of characters or whether it means that they count japanese characters as two characters if you know what i mean so if you have a mixed english japanese tweet you could have a tweet with say 270 english characters Mm. and five japanese characters because each japanese character counts for two for example right i don't know i i haven't looked into how it works but for the simple way that they put it in their announcement was that Japanese speakers still had 140 characters and that non-Japanese, Chinese, I don't know how this applies to Korean speakers, would have 280. But where does that end? Like, do you give German speakers three, 420? Or, like, where does that because they need more letters. They've got really long words in Germany. <laughs> I think, I think um, uh, my understanding of it was, again, uh, another one of Twitter's um, attempts to try and boost the popularity of their product because um, I think that the, this was kind of also a reaction to the fact that Twitter remains extremely popular in Asia and... I think it may have been the reason that they may have decided to do this experiment was just to see, is it something to do with the length? Because, for example, Japanese users of Twitter can post much more detailed, much more lengthy content in their tweets compared to their Western or English uh, Western language counterparts. And so why is it that Twitter remains incredibly popular in Asia is it something to do with the fact that these people can type their messages without having to worry so much about making things very, very short like we have to in English and other Western languages? So I think that's the reason that could have been, no, not could, I think that actually was one of the reasons that they decided to conduct the experiment 
Uh, and then the results of the experiment are obviously, you know, the, the results that we have with Twitter now. So I, th I believe it was basically another attempt to try and boost the popularity of Twitter. Right. And we'll see how it goes. I mean, I tend to fall back with this, as with so many other things, to the conclusion that I can agree or disagree and think it's a good idea or a bad idea or it as J.K. Rowling put it, throws away Twitter's USP, right? Mm. I can disagree with it as much as I like, but they have goals. Presumably their chief goal is to make money and to have lots of users use Twitter. Right. And they will be monitoring the result of this change. And we will find out from that, or they will find out whether they'll let us know, I doubt. But, you know, they will find out whether it was a good change or not, mm. because... How do you measure whether it was a good change? Well, uptake of Twitter, I presume. Right. I mean, whether Danny Wright happens to enjoy writing or reading tweets as much is neither here nor there as far as at Jack is concerned. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, I really like Twitter, but it's very, very strange. You know, it, it's... It, oh, it's getting stranger yeah, and it's, as well. It's hard, to, it's hard to really... Like, I can't really define what it is that I like about it. Uh, I find it very convenient, very useful, especially, uh, you know, I used to, I used to use Twitter basically just, you know, following uh, stuff that I was interested in. Right. Then I got annoyed by the fact that I was missing stuff in my timeline because my timeline was getting too long to sort of cope with all the stuff that I miss overnight. Right. I guess I'm just the kind of person, I'm, I'm more of a, an RSS person, <laughs> if you know what I mean, uh, yeah. than a social media kind of person. That is that, you know, I like to have a list of things. Here's my, here's my uh, collection of things for today and to go through them and to mark them as, as seen, you know, uh, like you do with an RSS feed. Right. I think there's definitely two kinds of people on Twitter and there's the people who want to read every tweet right. and the people who just look at the more recent tweets. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in your camp. I also basically want to get through all the tweets and, and not to have missed anything. And I'm right now in the position where I've recently followed a lot of classical accounts, a lot of accounts of people studying Greek and Roman literature. Right. And they tweet a lot. <laughs> I did not realize they would tweet so much. Right. And so I have far more. I cannot keep up at all. And I'm going to have to prune right. my who I'm following yeah. a little bit if I want to get back to that point. Yeah. So I found a few years ago something that I decided to do was to only follow people that I've actually personally met. Right. And primarily for work purposes, you know, people that I've met at conventions, gaming conventions or uh, colleagues. And when you do that, you know, suddenly it becomes incredibly useful because these are people that I've met personally and that I want to maintain this connection with. And, you know, with the exception of a few very, very frequent tweeters, uh, most people, you know, they don't maybe once or twice a day, which means that, uh, you know, you, the timeline becomes very, very relevant. So what I've decided to do is make use of another one of Twitter's unusual and very unglamorized features, which is their lists feature. Right. And I put all of the things that actually I'd, I don't, you know, I'd, I'd like to follow, but I don't really care so much about missing overnight uh, into a list called distractions. Oh, so you can add 
things to lists that you're not actually following. That's right. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, lists, it, again, this, is, this leads into the point of why Twitter is so strange, but lists are a way for you to follow somebody without, follow their tweets without actually following their account. Right. Which is really strange, but lists came out, I think, as another, again, another one of Twitter's unusual attempts to boost its, its usefulness and its popularity. And um, now lists are downplayed to the point of being buried under menus on Twitter.com and only really available if you're using TweetDeck or a third-party Twitter client. Right. I think you can, in the Twitter app for, for uh, iOS at least, you can find lists by going to your profile page and pressing the cog and then there'll be something in there that says lists and then you can actually oh, see. see them in there. So they're, they're very right. sort of buried under the surface now. I, I have used lists. But I, for some reason, always assumed that they had to be subsets of people you followed. So I made lists out. So I have my, my people that I follow is like the superset of, of all my lists plus people that aren't in any list. Mm. And then lists are like a limited view of some portion of that for me. Right. I didn't realize. I guess I just never tried to add to a list someone who i didn't follow yeah you do it from the instead of pressing follow you press the cog and in there it'll say you know add add or manage lists or something like that and um, you can right, do it from right. there anyway yeah. it's such a bizarre thing and in certain circles of you know certain circles of different industries it has become very very popular and of course for game developers twitter still remains i guess the 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 main conduit for the spreading of information amongst game developers and colleagues in this industry. Right. And yet, when you think about it, it's a really impractical choice for that. And there's no, I can't really think of a, an obvious reason why Twitter has become the default, but it has. And again, this is another example of just how weird it is. I mean, you, you're throwing around these very short I mean, essentially, Twitter is micro-blogging, right? Right. That's that's the original pitch, almost. Exactly. And so, you know, you you are sending out these little short snippets of thoughts or recommendations or, or ideas or, or links or photos or whatever to the people who follow you. And yet, you know, in the in, at least amongst game developers, you'll get conversations happening, you'll you get... Uh, uh, you know, a lot of interesting visual things happening with different kinds of, you know, screenshots. Right. Yeah. Anyway, and then of course you've got all the hashtags on top of this as well. So, it's it's such a weird choice. It's not really suited to conversations. I don't know what else you would choose though. Well, I think Twitter has properties that n nothing else has really. I mean, before Twitter, you had everyone had individual blogs and you could subscribe to them with RSS. Mm. And that was great. And I like that model. And I would like that model to continue and perhaps grow a little bit again, because it's fallen by the wayside a little bit. But mm. RSS is still a thing. And people forget, but it's still going. Anyway, uh, you would have that. And, but that doesn't work as Twitter. That is sort of scattered around and everyone's sort of, like it's much more heavyweight. And then Tumblr was like, one step closer to that where where you can reblog things right. so you can that gave you the retweet functionality essentially for a blog right but again it's sort of big and bulky and twitter is so light and easy mm. and then for conversations it's for the kinds of conversations you have on twitter i think it's much better than something like slack 
or IRC mm. or a traditional chat program because those are ephemeral. Those just disappear like they never happened. Right. Whereas Twitter is extremely public and remains online forever mm. for people to refer back to and link to, which, you know, has its problems as well, mm. but is a property that Twitter has that I don't think anything else really does. Yeah, but I mean, conversations in Twitter, especially amongst multiple people, uh, you know, I mean, just take a, you know, if you, if you are seeing a conversation between two people that you follow, mm. depending on which tweet they reply to, that will create different sort of threads in the system. Right, you get this kind of tree structure yeah. that comes out. And if you're looking at the wrong thing, you may be not seeing replies because they're you know, replying to intermediary messages instead of the first one. And it's just really weird. It is, but, that, but what else is there? Yeah. Like there's no... I, I think the claim that there are problems with Twitter for the purpose of having conversations online is valid. But can't think of an alternative so the claim that it's a funny choice it well what what other choice is there what do you think would be a better thing to use i suppose at least as far as conversations and interaction between people as much as i really don't like it facebook conversations are easier at least to visually parse on Facebook. Of course, Facebook is not open, right. uh, which means that you can't just sort of step into somebody else's conversation. Right. Facebook doesn't have the, the public nature of right. Twitter. And I mean, partly technically and partly just culturally, like it's Facebook feels more like a place for it, that, at least in theory, is you and your friends and your family right. rather than your thoughts just going out into the world. Yeah, of course, these days, you know, Facebook uh, in different countries, Facebook is sort of like a de facto LinkedIn, <laughs> in, uh, certainly in Japan and definitely in Sweden as well. Facebook is is the primary social network in, in Sweden. Right. And um, like Japan as well, it is basically a, a surrogate LinkedIn <laughs> where you know the, the, the LinkedIn, I'm not. It, it's definitely the main place to organize events. Yeah, but I mean the, especially in the the game industry in in Sweden on Facebook, is essentially LinkedIn, <laughs> in the sense that mm. you know it it's you connect with professionals, you follow and they follow you back, professionals and colleagues, right? And you have your resu right. you have your resume in your bio, and you know it's uh, it's like a surrogate LinkedIn, but. I suppose that as far as the ease of conducting conversations, yes, it's not a it's, it's not a replacement for Twitter because it's closed, but certainly the interface visually it's much easier to follow and to interact with different conversations uh, on Facebook compared to Twitter. It does have the the slightly older model, I guess, of a post and then comments on that post, right? And that's kind of what makes it e easier, right? Because the comments all belong with the post and you can see them and if you reply to a comment that is slightly indented so it does still form a tree but they're all clear clearly under one post right i don't know i don't know that it's easier though i mean i find conversations small conversations between like friends that i actually know mm. are fairly easy to track mm. that's true that i mean i find those fairly easy to track on twitter as well but then when you get something retweeted or or shared onto your Facebook newsfeed that is sort of something that's gone viral mm. and has like 10,000 comments yeah. on the... Like, I don't even know where to begin with that. I click the show comments and I'm just presented with this sort of random 
selection of 10 of the 20,000 comments. Whereas the, with Twitter, I tend to find that the interesting comments will be the thing that is retweeted into my account. Like, cause you can, I don't think you can share a comment in Facebook mm. and then get from that to the original comment thread. Whereas in Twitter, everything is a tweet. So if somebody said something interesting, like deep into a conversation, which is a reply to somebody, reply to somebody else, somebody can retweet that and you'll see that. And then you can click on that and go back and see the original thread. Mm. So I still kind of think I I find the experience better on Twitter than Facebook there. I think I would, now that we have 280 characters, I might agree with you. <laughs> Previously though, you know, when you've got 140 characters and you've got all these names with all these, you know, all these at names at the top and maybe a link down the bottom or hashtags or whatever and, and you have to sort of compress something that you want to say to four people into like 80 characters, mm. <laughs> you know. It's funny because actually one of the criticisms that I have seen and I sort of find myself agreeing with about the 280 character thing on Twitter is what's well, going to make it more like Facebook and well, I find that harder to keep up with and to read yeah i i i wouldn't agree there because i think the one thing that i've always really liked about twitter compared to facebook is the fact that it's very open right and you need to have some well you don't need to but it's advisable to have a bit of a sense of responsibility of what you say there because anybody can look it up and anybody can view it anytime right and i i just find that yeah the i remember back you know like five years ago when all of this was picking up pace I just found Twitter so much easier to understand because with Facebook, you've got these right. pages and pages of security settings and, uh, you know, who can see my post friends of friends of friends or whatever. And, right. you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas on Twitter, it's just very, very easy. And I can remember explaining to somebody who was new to social media about Facebook and all of the kinds of settings that you have to do when you first sign up to make sure that you are saying these things to the people who you want to read them. Whereas Twitter is just really easy. Well, everybody can see what you're right. writing, so just take care. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've always preferred that as well. It, it seems more openly. Because Facebook is, you know, we all know it's not really private. Right. And so, but there's this culture that you kind of feel like you can talk about more private things on there, even though you can't. Right. Whereas Twitter just feels more sort of uh, almost honest in that respect. Mm. And I think we're... We're coming to a time, uh, well, no, we are already in a time where taking responsibility for the things that you say online is critical. Right. And it's just like you wouldn't walk into a room of strangers and then suddenly say something controversial. But people don't yet understand that, which is interesting. I mean, children are actually being taught this in schools now. Right. Like I've seen on Twitter photos of worksheets that children are given about like what they should and shouldn't say online password advice right like don't use your name and your password and things like that like it's just bizarre but funnily at twitter among other things and there's you know a deep rabbit hole we could go down about uh, politics on twitter at the moment but a few years ago i noticed that one by one a few of my friends were closing their facebook accounts right and that has just started happening with Twitter now, oh, okay. which is interesting. I have a couple of friends who have recently closed their Twitter accounts. Right. And it's funny because <laughs> I'm, I'm obviously more into Twitter than they are. Mm. And we have an iMessage group chat, which is mostly filled with me linking them to tweets that I thought were funny. <laughs> so, and apparently this did actually enter into the calculus. And they're like, well... 
even if I close my account, I'm going to see the best tweets anyway because Daniel just copied them into the chat. <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. No, I mean, Twitter still remains, for me, it still remains my, I, I don't really like social media that much, but it still remains my favorite in the sense that there have been so many times when I have learned about something, especially natural disasters. Right. So it's useful in that sense. But then also meeting people, amazingly, uh, you know, there are so many, I think because it's completely open, it's much easier to meet new people on Twitter than it is, especially in professional circles. You know, if, for example, if you're a game developer right. and one of your game development colleagues retweets a nice screenshot from one of their colleagues right. and you follow it and then you say, hey, nice screenshot, tell me a little bit more about this or whatever, right. and they reply to you and then a conversation starts up and you find that, you know, you are you get along, getting along well, and then you follow them, and they follow you back, and there you go. You've got, you've met someone. Right. It's very, very. There's a very. It, it, it's quite an equalizer, Twitter. Right. Like I follow some people that I massively respect, and I just get a sort of glimpse into their thoughts and the things they're, you know, thinking about and looking into and learning about, and I get as much of a glimpse from that as I do from people that I know very well, which is an interesting dynamic. Right, right. Yeah, so yeah. anyway, now there is a new contender in the ring. So what's that all about? Well, you were saying that Twitter's not very good for conversation. And Reddit is obviously another social media option. And I think has, obviously we use it for Station 13. And I think it has certain use cases that it works better than, than Twitter. But one thing it hasn't had until recently, is any sort of live chat functions. It's had direct messages, and it's got a, it is a kind of forum. Mm. But it didn't have sort of live one-to-one chat. Right. And they have just, as of, I think, yesterday or the day before, added this as a beta feature. Well. So you can use it as a chat client. In this sense, it's more like Facebook Messenger than Facebook, you know, or WhatsApp, or iMessage, right. or line or any of the others and the last thing i really need is another chat application right, right. <laughs> on my phone that people can uh, contact me on so i don't i don't really know how i feel like like i feel if anything i am even before this came about i was annoyed with the number of instant messaging applications that i seem to have to have installed mm. on my phone because i have i use imessage for most things but there are people that I know that don't have any Apple devices. Mm. They have Android phones, for example. And so iMessage isn't an option with them. And for them, I would prefer to use Signal, which is an end-to-end encrypted, secure messaging platform, much like iMessage is. Right. But it's not particularly popular. The other option is WhatsApp, which is also end-to-end encrypted, like like iMessage and Signal. In fact, it uses, I think, the same technique, the same library that Signal does to do its encryption. But it's owned by Facebook, and I don't really know why I hold that against them, (laughs) but I kind of do. Uh, So I'm just... I don't know why... I feel like WhatsApp is a very good choice. People should use it. There's there's a bit of a dangerous uh, thing of people who feel a little bit uneasy about WhatsApp, like I do, giving the impression that it's a bad choice and then 
you know, people get decide that they don't want to use WhatsApp, so they use Facebook Messenger or something completely unencrypted like that. Right. WhatsApp is a very good choice, and I think it should be recommended to most people. But for some reason, it's it's my third choice after iMessage and Signal. Right. So it's a, a choice of last resort for me. And, well, actually, the choice of last resort is Facebook Messenger, right. which seems to be the first choice for a not insubstantial subset of my friends, hmm. which makes things difficult. Like, I don't, I have friends who have iPhones who could iMessage me, but for some reason decide to contact me over Facebook Messenger, and I don't really know why. Maybe because they, they talk to everyone else over Facebook Messenger. I guess Facebook Messenger is common because everything, every device has it, so it's an easy choice if you're going to use one one messaging platform for everything. But it's completely unencrypted, and we know that Facebook scans it and does data mining on it and everything. So I don't know. It's not. It it wouldn't be my choice for WhatsApp. Do you use WhatsApp at all? No, actually, uh, actually, I haven't tried WhatsApp. Um, I've been asked, "Do you have WhatsApp?" numerous right. times but right. i've actually never tried it so actually i don't know much about it um it's uh is it is it kind of like line uh not quite no it's a cross-platform instant messaging app which uses your phone number as your identifier i see so you don't have to create an account for it and it doesn't use your email address or anything like that it's just your phone number so it feels a lot like texting, but mm. it's over the internet. And it's end-to-end encrypted. And it's very it's popular, particularly with people, obviously, who don't have iPhones mm. because it's a, a common app that they can use to talk to anyone, whatever device they have, whatever mobile device they have, because I don't think there is a Mac or PC version of it, right? as far as I know. But the the sort of weird thing for me about it is that the only people who really use WhatsApp to talk to me are my family. And I think this started with my Australian cousins or aunts and uncles who all seem to use it. And so when everyone came for my wedding in Japan... WhatsApp was the principal way that they would all send messages to each other because as long as they had Wi-Fi, they didn't have to worry about roaming fees Mm. and it was free and they're sending messages to international numbers anyway. And I think with iMessage, maybe they're getting confused and thinking they might have to pay fees because it used to be before iMessage was introduced when it was just the messages app, which, you know, sent SMS text messages. Right. And still, if you're sending to someone who doesn't have iMessage and you've got green bubbles, right. then it uses the SMS system and you have to pay for those, right? Hmm. So maybe that's why they're doing it, to avoid it. But I have not been able to discern a particular reason, like a deciding factor between whether, for example, my dad will send me a message. He might send it via WhatsApp or via iMessage. Mm. And I think he listens to the podcast, so maybe he'll listen to this and he'll have an answer for me. But (laughs) (laughs) he'll send you on WhatsApp, no doubt. As far as I can tell, it's random. Like whether I receive the message via iMessage or WhatsApp, 
seems to me to be fairly random. There's a slight skew towards messages with videos attached. Right. He'll tend to send via WhatsApp. And I'm I'm not sure if that's a reason, if there's a reason for that, or if that's just the first one that comes up in the list when, you know, in the app when he goes share video or whatever. Right. And this is not just to pick up my dad. I mean, this is a few people that are like this that will sometimes send me message on iMessage and sometimes through WhatsApp and sometimes through other platforms as well. Hmm. And I don't, I don't really know why. I don't really mind, except that I prefer it wasn't Facebook Messenger. Right. Because with WhatsApp, Signal, and iMessage, all three of those are encrypted, so it's private anyway. Right. So it doesn't really bother me, except that because I don't really use WhatsApp, I think I often don't get notifications for it. Because what will sometimes happen is I'll get a new phone, and when you get a new phone, you have to when you launch WhatsApp, you have to update it and say this phone number is now associated with this new phone right? rather than the old one. And I think it uses that for the encryption so you can't receive any messages until you do that. Hmm. And because I never launch WhatsApp, I'll just forget. And so I'll go for weeks or months without getting any messages over WhatsApp because I haven't set it up yet. Hmm. And then people are saying, did you get my message? I, so... <laughs> anyway, I don't really. I, I, so, so a chat, another chat application, kind of feels like the last thing I need, and I'm not massively excited about Reddit chat, except right. that there is a group of people, particularly now we're doing this podcast. There are people that I've met through that you know that we meet through Reddit, and I've met through the podcast, and like Charlie, who's posted on the Reddit and is host of A Town, that obviously doesn't have my phone number and I'm not inclined to give my phone number out to random strangers on the internet. Mm. So, you know, and he's not on my Facebook either. So he couldn't send me a message through any of the existing options that I'm signed up to. So I guess part of the reason to have a chat platform for every platform that you're on Mm. is that the people that you know on that platform will have a way to get in touch with you yeah I mean, charlie of course could always contact you via twitter see twitter wins again well and and I mean, funnily enough i told him about this reddit chat feature over a twitter dm all right so we used twitter in order to negotiate uh talking on the reddit chat. <laughs> yeah. so it's it's all very bizarre it's, i'm not sure that um you know obviously being connected to the people that we know the people that we work with the people that we love so closely, so conveniently, but remotely, of course, we benefit from that. But it's kind of a, a weird situation we have now. It's like, oh, I need to contact this person. Now, what is it that they use again? Right. Was right, it Skype? Right. Or yeah. was, it, uh, was it... Skype. There's another one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it is, it is kind of annoying. It's getting to the point now where it's overwhelming, where I have yeah. so many apps on my home screen yeah. whose icon is either a blue or a green bubble. <laughs> right. And <laughs> it's like, which one do I have to launch for this person? And and then if I want to have a group chat, it's even worse. It's like, oh, well, I usually talk to this person on iMessage, but this other person doesn't have iMessage. So right. they're usually a WhatsApp person, but this person doesn't have WhatsApp. It's all very fragmented. Yeah, it is. And uh, the, the other interesting thing is it's very, very hard to break into these established social networks their monopoly on different 
different industries and different groups of people. Right. Do you remember Elo? Oh, yeah, yeah. I signed up to Elo for a bit. Did you sign up to Elo? I did. And it's funny because recently, for I've, I haven't used it since I signed up for it. I can remember when it was going around. It's like a it's like a craze. You know, Elo is here to, to save us from ads. So right. let's 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 all go and sign up and get our usernames now. Right. And then nobody used it. Right. For whatever reason, recently I've been getting followers on Elo, even though I haven't used it since I first signed up <laughs> when it first came out. I've been getting a real spate of followers on Instagram recently, and I never use Instagram. Mm. And I signed up for Instagram once years ago before Facebook bought it. Took one photo, which I can't even remember taking, but it was a random photo of the side of a locker somewhere in Japan or something. Right. And it's the only photo I have on my Instagram. And every now and then I'll just get some random just liking it, mm. like clicking the heart button on that photo. It's not a particularly good photo. It seems to have no context. Right. I don't know if they're bots trying to get me to follow them by liking my... I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And then recently I've been getting... Uh, because it's linked to Facebook now, obviously, people who are on my Facebook will launch Instagram and it'll come up and say, you might know Danny Wright and they'll click on the thing and add me. Right. But I'm totally not, you know, actively engaged with that with that one. Yeah. The other one is Pinterest, which uh, I remember signing up for when it first started because I thought it would be a really, con- I thought the idea was really, really convenient. Mm. I remember about a year after I was using it, I got a little bit nervous because uh, there was a lot of word going around about the legality of Pinterest mm. uh, in the fact that you are you are sharing images uh, online and obviously you are sharing links directly to those images. Right. But you are still using images created by other people. Right. And obviously, you know, Pinterest is still around and it's still going very, very strong. So obviously those legal concerns uh, haven't really led to any serious problems for the service. But uh, yeah, I think that uh, from the, the social networks, they all have their place and they're all very useful for different features and different functions. And your Pinterest is, is a great way for what it's designed to do. You know, it's just to sort of save uh, a collection of images for yourself or for sharing with other people. Right. Instagram is also, uh, you know, its popularity is very easy to understand. You know, I uh, I follow, I use Instagram as basically like a nonstop visual inspiration reel where I can just sort of go there and just look at some nice art and, and nice design and stuff from the different designers and artists that I followed. But uh, right. still for me though, Twitter remains the most useful. And uh, unfortunately, the greatest thing about Facebook is messenger.com. Oh, they actually got a browser version of that. You didn't know? No, because I just used the app. Right. Messenger.com is the greatest thing about Facebook. Mm. Messenger.com is Facebook's messenger just on its own. Right. Yeah. It's a browser application and it's uh, you know, it's easy to use and you've got all of your messenger things. It allows you to actually communicate with people who prefer Facebook Messenger right. without having to open Facebook, which is great. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I have the Messenger app installed on my phone. Right. And I don't have the Facebook app installed on my phone. Yeah, me too. So, that's, that's kind of... The, but I, it does mean that I never use my computer to talk to people on Facebook Messenger. So, if somebody contacts me on Facebook Messenger, then, you know, I'm typing with my thumbs and all the rest of it. Now you have the answer. It is messenger.com. There you go. That is the greatest thing about Facebook, (laughs) a way to not have to use Facebook. (laughs) It's, I mean, yeah, you know, it's sort of difficult because I can understand it for 
a lot of people, Facebook is kind of the center of their internet experience. Mm. Like they log on to Facebook first and then get led to other places from there. Right. And for them, like, for example, Facebook events are a very convenient feature because mm. anybody who's organizing an event, they make a page for it on Facebook, they can track how many people are coming, they can have limits on how many people can come, mm. it gets shared around, it's sort of self-publicizing, and everyone's sort of got it, except that everyone doesn't have it. And as soon as you're kind of outside, if you've closed your Facebook account on one extreme, or if you just don't tend to check Facebook on the other, right? you're suddenly very much out of the loop. You're excluded from all these events that might be going on. Mm. And I don't, that's kind of a complaint without a solution. So I don't, I'm not really complaining. I don't give it much credence because what are you supposed to do? Like Facebook is currently offering the best service for organizing events quickly and easily and managing them mm. there are others like doorkeeper and things which we used to use to arrange sort of study meetups and things we i used to run a functional programming study group in the kansai area called the kansai functional dojo and we did all that through doorkeeper but it's not very popular for normal people right yeah, and meetup.com is another one and do you know anybody who's used that uh, i've used it <laughs> for what did you organize an event or were you going to an event i was going to an event and it was on meetup.com mm. and uh the event was organized through that so i had to sign up to it in order to say that i was going to it right uh, and then when i looked through it i was like oh this is you know it was it's uh of course is aware of the fact that i'm in stockholm so it was coming up with all these nice looking events mm -hmm. as as a single repository for different events based around different kinds of interests and different purposes all right that's one thing i guess that it uh, i mean any of these event organizing services will have over Facebook in that it's all there. You know, the, you just filter by location and the things that you're interested in and then here they all are. Right. <laughs> I guess that kind of works if you're looking for a particular kind of event in your area, which is one particular use case. Right. If there are just events going on which your sort of friends and acquaintances are organizing mm. and they happen to use Facebook to manage it, then you don't have a choice you've got to use facebook and on the on the other side if they happen to use meetup.com to manage it mm. then suddenly everyone's got to sign up to this new service just to say whether they're going to the event or not so it's yeah you know both both of those things are annoying yeah <laughs> i don't have an answer it's just yeah well, first world problems, but... Yeah, like I said earlier on, basically social networks, I, I don't really like them very much. But still, Twitter remains, uh, out of all of these, the ones that has time and time again proven to be just very, very useful. Right. Especially professionally and also just on a day-to-day -day basis of keeping track of what's going on. It still proves, yeah, it still is, is the most useful for me. And uh, the fact that it's now 280 characters, like I said earlier, fine. Okay, mm. you know, it's, it's, uh, it means I don't have to worry so much when I'm trying to cull down. Uh, I think maybe it, it could be because I, when I write, I try to make things as concise as possible anyway. Mm. Now I don't have to worry too much about shaving off characters in order to get it out there. Mm. I'll still try and make it concise. But uh, anyway. Were you around when the Great Migration happened from MySpace to Facebook? No. I do remember MySpace, but... Uh, no, I don't remember. A because that seemed impossible. That's at the time, the idea that anything could not MySpace off its pedestal seemed 
just outrageous because right. everyone was already on MySpace. Right. And Facebook started out as being fairly minor and only for schools and universities. And, mm. you know, it didn't seem like much of a threat. And then suddenly everyone switched over to it. And funnily enough, I remember when I first switched over to it, I really liked it because MySpace let you customize the CSS of your page right. and let you customize the whole page quite a lot. And so everyone's page looked totally different and the majority of people on there didn't have a very good design sense. Right. And so the whole thing looked like a mess the whole time. And people would set up these midis or these YouTube videos to play in the background as soon as That's you right. went on the page. So, you know, it was all noisy. Complete assault. And Facebook just seemed clean, right? Right. You could just, you had your page, they all looked the same. You had a limited set of things you could fill in. And I, I really liked that. And then slowly things got added to it, as they mm. always do. <laughs> the other one, of course, for uh, music professionals is SoundCloud. Right. Which is, uh, again, more, I guess, like Pinterest, it's more of a functional kind of thing than a uh, sort of something that you'd use for fun. Mm. It's great for browsing music. And Bandcamp is really good too. Right, yeah. Bandcamp actually has, uh, I remember, uh, when you have an account on Bandcamp as an artist, there's a part of the website I remember once, I think it's like the settings page or something, where you can actually play the original Defender game in the header of the <laughs> website. <laughs> I have not seen that. Yeah, but uh, Bandcamp has the, the best branding identity mm. in that uh, the, the, the tone of their communications to their users and the documentation that you read, like the help files, are uh, written by somebody with a very, very fine sense of humor mm. and any band camp users out there will probably uh, know what i'm talking about that some of them can be very very funny so mm. they, they definitely have the the brand identity thing down right yeah yeah I, I used to have a web host called dreamhost where i used to host my website i don't anymore but they they have a newsletter which they used to send out and that was always sort of very funny and for a while i enjoyed it but eventually i think it's what one of these things with being funny and having a, a funny brand identity is that it's it's really good until something goes wrong right and you're annoyed with the service right right and then you get one of these funny emails and you're thinking just shut up and fix my problem <laughs> <laughs> right that's when they can take a lesson from the uh, dungeons and dragons customer support <laughs> Yeah, well, because that one, it was in character, but they were actually providing very good support and, you know, very quickly solving my problem. Right. Had they, in character, told me, no, you can't have a replacement book, I would have reacted very differently to the fact <laughs> they decided to respond in character, I think. That's true. 